Hello, and welcome to 13, the podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate community members. I am your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the honor of hosting Colgate alumnus and retired U.S. Navy SEAL Mark Devine for what will be the last episode of this third season of 13. Devine was an economics major at Colgate in the class of 1985, and after graduation, he went on to earn his MBA from NYU. And after spending a short time in the world of finance, he decided to leave that world in in favor of service to his country. And he joined the U.S. Navy, where he would become an officer in the Navy SEALs uh, for over 20 years, uh, retiring at the rank of commander in 2011. Now, in addition to these considerable accomplishments, Devine is also an author, a podcast host, a life coach, a motivational speaker, a certified public accountant, a certified yoga teacher, and a black belt in two forms of martial arts. Uh, You can learn all about his endeavors these days at his website, unbeatablemind.com. And I am so happy to talk to Mark today. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for that very generous introduction. <laughs> Did I leave anything out? Uh, no. no. You, 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 you probably included too much, but that's fine. Uh, well, <laughs> I, just I like something this... to talk about. <laughs> that's right. Well, I want to start um, just with a little background here. And I'm curious about your time at Colgate. So um, when, you, when you came to Colgate, were there any professors or courses that really um, changed your outlook on your life or had an influence on your career path in any way? Yeah, actually, there was um, one professor... Uh, so a little background probably would be helpful. You know, I am from upstate New York, literally live about 45 minutes away from Hamilton, New York, small town named Barneville, New York, population 375. So it's actually smaller than Hamilton. And so Colgate was a big deal. It was like move to the big city for me. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and, and, you know, I went to a, a pub, one of those public high schools in upstate New York, which is an amalgamation of like six districts. And the biggest club at my high school was Future Farmers of America, and I was not one of them, right? And so I was like a fish out of water there. There were four of us who went on to college in my graduating class. Wow. Yeah. How many people were in your graduating class? Well, I think our school had about um, 200 maybe. Okay. Yeah, so not insignificant. So that's like 2%. (laughs) So when I, um, uh, probably the, the drawback to that for me was the two things here. One is I, you know, we didn't have any AP classes. You know, our public school was really focused on, um, you know, just getting ready, people ready to get out into the workforce and into the farm communities. And, and so academics were not a big deal, you know. So for me to come out of there with straight A's was, was easy. And I really didn't learn great study habits. And I didn't have a lot of academic confidence. At the same time, there was an aspect of me that just knew I was an intelligent person. So when I went to Colgate, I was, and my mom, you know, was pretty interested in, you know, me being a doctor. And of course, you know, as a young, impressionable guy, I wanted to please my mom. And I grew up in a family where, you know, codependence and that type of uh, family dynamic was pretty prevalent. Let's just put it that way. So I was living the story. Um, So I showed up at Colgate as a pre-med not economics. Economics ended up being a fallback. And so hmm. there, there's two, back to your question, there's two professors who had a profound influence. One was an economics professor, but the first one was actually my physics professor. 
So here I am freshman year and I'm, I'm taking, you know, the, the typical freshman year pre-med, one of which was physics and uh, physics. I loved it. Like it was fascinating to me, but there were no quizzes, no tests. There was a midterm and a final. Hmm. So I'm cruising along. I get to the midterm and uh, we had a lot of people in this class. I take this test and I utterly bombed it. Right. I was like, I, I had no idea what the hell he was asking. Like, it didn't seem like there were anything that we had studied, right? And so I bombed this test, and I had never bombed a test before because I was at this public school where everything was easy to me. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, shit, I must not be as smart as I thought I was, and pre-med must be a fantasy. So I went to the freshman um, counselor, and the freshman counselor was brand new, literally had just started his job. And he, uh, I told him the situation. He said, well, you probably should drop the class. Great advice, right? You know, <laughs> let's start run. there. Drop the class. Yeah. You're obviously not fit to be a, a doctor. So uh, I went and talked to the professor and the professor said, yeah, you should drop the class. Well, so I dropped the class and uh, I said, well, shoot, I'm not very smart. So what's the easiest degree I can get? Well, economics. <laughs> I, I later find out it was rocks for jocks, but I said, well, economics was second. You know? So I transferred into economics. Well, so... So this professor had a profound impact on my career because I went in to be pre-med. Next thing I know, one, one guy telling me to drop the class and my lack of confidence you know, changes that trajectory. It shows you how these decisions are made in life, especially mm -hmm. when you're young. Sometimes they're not very thought out. Turns out, Daniel, at the end of the semester, I was hanging out. I'd, I joined a fraternity, Beta Theta Potato, and I was talking to one of my friends who was a swimmer, a bunch of us swimmers. We kind of bailed on... Um, the swimming fraternity and went over to beta. We got recruited to beta, but I was talking to this guy, Chris Whalen, who became a doctor. And I said, Hey, you were in that physics class. How did you do on that midterm? He goes, Oh, I bombed it. I said, really? I said, I got a 40. He goes, I got a 30. I said, what? He goes, yeah, he curved it. I said your 40 was one of the highest grades in the class. Oh man. <laughs> I know. Right. And I was like, huh? My jaw hit the floor. I was like, wow, look at that. What do you know? Hmm. So the second professor was a guy named Honkaleto. Now it's my, um, I, I, I muddled through freshman year, spend most of my time partying and um, swimming. I was a competitive swimmer. So, so I, I'm, and then I'm in sophomore year and I'm getting through sophomore year and I find out a couple of my fraternity brothers who are like super smart are going to this overseas study program in London for economics. And they're going to go to the London School of Economics and do all these really cool things. And here's this little kid from Cowtown, USA, thinking, I've never been out of the country. That would be a really cool experience. Can I do this? And um, so I asked who, the, you know, who was running this program. They said, this guy named Honkaleto. And they said, you can find him down the, uh, either in his classroom. They told me what his classroom was. And, or he's always at the pool because he's a swimmer. I said, ah, cool. Well, I'm a swimmer. Got something in common there. So I found him at the pool one day. And I went up to him and I said, Mr. Honkalito, my name is Mark Devine. I'm a sophomore economics student. And, I, and I've heard about this program and I'd love to go overseas for this program. Can I get in or can I apply? He said, he said, sure, you can apply. Can I ask you what your grade point average is? You know, and I swallowed and I said, 2.85. <laughs> and he goes, he just had this like frown on his face. Well, and he said, well, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's really for our top students, you know, and most of the students have above a 4.0 or all the students have above a 4.0 or going. I said, well, shoot. I said, well, can I still apply and be on the waiting list? He goes, no harm, no foul. So I went to every single meeting 
that he had around this study group, even though I had no chance of getting in. And every time I saw Mr. Honkaleto at the pool, I went up and talked to him. Say, hey, Mr. Honkaleto, how are you doing? Good to see you. How's your swimming going? How's your life? How's your family? And how about that economic study program? <laughs> and he said, no, no, no news. Don't get your hopes up. Anyways, so we get to the end of the semester and he's having a final meeting. Like this is the, the meeting that you can't miss. And he says this, right? He sends out, I don't can't remember how we communicated back then. This is pre-internet, right? Pre-email. But I got the word that this was the meeting. You can't miss it. If you want to go, you got to be at this meeting. So I go. Guess what? One guy doesn't show up. Hmm. There it is. And so Honkolito literally on the spot said, Mark, guess what? You're, you're going to London. So anyways, the reason that was so profound, Daniel, is because, again, I came from this small town in upstate New York with a fairly dysfunctional family. I love them to death. They're great people, but, you know, not uncommon these days to know that uh, childhood trauma that comes from alcohol and abusive relationship does things to an individual that need to be unwound in later life. And so, you know, what that did to me was create a sense of, you know, um, shame and, and lack of confidence that I overcompensated with, with overachievement and trying to impress people. Hmm. And it wasn't hard to do because I was, you know, fit. I loved athletics. I looked good. You know, I, I had the outer package to impress people, but inside I didn't feel whole. And yet there was something inside of me, you know, my, my higher self, my witness, what you, whatever you want to call it, that was driving me forward and saying, you are more. Go find out what that is. And one of the ways you can do that is through this travel experience. Get out of this little cocoon of, of upstate New York and Colgate and get away from your family. Get some distance. Get some perspective. See how other people view the world. And I, and I was craving this. And so this was my path. And Honkoleto gave that opportunity to me. And I remember I spent six months in London and, and, or five months in London. And then we, uh, my friends and I toured um, Europe after that for a month and we came back in January and I was, I was completely transformed. I mean, I felt completely different as a human being. And that was what gave me the confidence uh, to even apply, you know, junior uh, spring when the companies came around and senior fall, you know, before then I was thinking, you know, I'll probably go back to the family business in Barneville, New York and, or Utica, New York which is over a hundred years old. And there was no shame in that. You know, all of my family work there. They do to this day. And it's not an insignificant company, the 400 employees. And I, you know, had I not had Honkaleto in this experience, I'd probably be running it today. But that gave me the confidence to think, well, maybe I can do what these other 4.0 students can do and go down to Wall Street and, you know, tap into that kind of, um, you know, that professional white collar career. Sorry about that. <laughs> and um musical interlude. we're done gotta go so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it it was transformative <laughs> and that's what led me to even having the courage to apply to coopers and Librand, who who knows why but they hired me they saw something in me and they they sent me to nyu with a um with a bunch of other students from other uh liberal arts schools and, and some from colgate and the premise there was these big eight accounting firms, which are, as you know, are now big four. I was with Coopers, which is now PricewaterhouseCoopers, mm -hmm. wanted to hire liberal arts graduates who were not accounting majors because Colgate did not have an accounting class at that time or a major. And I don't think it does still. And uh, they thought that they could teach them the accounting, the auditing, the consulting, and that over time they would make a much better or more well-rounded 
um, partner. And guess who one of my peers was? My fraternity brother, Carmine DeCibio. <laughs> so he, he got hired by Ernst & Winnie. I got hired by Coopers & Libran. And now Carmen is global CEO of EY. That's right. And we're going to have him on the show here soon. Oh, he's awesome. Tell him I said hi. I, I will. Um, you know, that's a good, good segue here into um, – I'm curious about your time. You know, you finished the, uh, the MBA and you're working – I guess you, you started working. And then when did you realize that wasn't for you and that you were going to leave and join the military? Yeah. Well, this is a – it's a fascinating story because it wasn't like I had been thinking of the military but then decided to go into corporate America and then said, OK, I chose wrong. Military was not on my radar at all. Um, in fact, I had a pretty negative um, conditioning toward the military because my dad, who went to Union College, was kind of a drunk, uh, not kind of, you know, was, and he drove his, um, he got drunk and drove his car into the fraternity house, right? And so he's standing in front of the judge the next day, and the judge says, geez, good job, Lees. His name was Lees. He goes, you can either A, go to jail, or B, join the army. He goes, B. <laughs> so he finds himself in the 11th Airborne in Germany, you know, at the end of the, <clears throat> the occupation there. And, you know, the 11th Airborne had a horrible morale problem and tons of drinking and, and you know, just messing around. And so his experience was suboptimal, let's just say. And so for him and the language, you know, in, you know, I always asked him about his tattoo and he would just put down the military and say it was for basically for, for people who like him who couldn't figure shit out and uh, had nothing better to do. And so that was my, that was my thinking. I don't think that was uncommon in the Northeast, right? Not, not a whole lot of kids in my school were joining, you know, with Colgate were joining the military and ROTC wasn't even on campus. But um, so, so I get to New York and I'm now working full time and I'm going to school at night at NYU, which is down at the World Trade Center at the time, the old World Trade Center. And because I was a competitive athlete at Colgate, I was a competitive swimmer, then I got into rowing, and then I got into triathlons. So I get to New York, and there's that higher self that I talked about that's always sort of been online with me, told me, don't let this stuff go. You look around you. You see all of these professionals de um, denying the power of their body, uh, letting their body go into decline. And I knew that intuitively meant that the brains were going in decline because the brain is part of the body and it takes 40% of the energy. And I said, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I said, I, I have this sense that I can keep this body fit as a fiddle for as long as I need it. And then when I'm done, I'm done. I've since proven that, you know, at 58 years old, I'm actually stronger and more fit than a lot of the SEAL trainees that I train today. Um, and so I, part of me just kind of understood that intuitively. So I kept training every morning. I'd get up, go for my six mile run at lunchtime when my peers would go to, um, you know, have their high carb lunch and a beer, I would go to the gym and crank out what's now like a CrossFit workout, you know, a high intensity workout with whatever equipment I could find. I'd bring it, you know, bring some weights and find the Stairmaster and I would just blast a sweat for 30 minutes. And then I'd have to shower up and get back to the office. Anyways, where I'm going with this story, Daniel, is I had this two-hour window between when Cooper said, you're done because you got to get ready for school, and then when I had to be at school, which I think was around 7.30. So we get off at like 5, between 5 and 5.30, and we have to be down at the World Trade Center at 7.30. So to me, I looked at that two hours, and I was like, oh, 
this is a training block, right? Everyone else said, oh, this is time for me to go home, shower up, do a little homework, eat something. <laughs> for me, I was like, this is a training block and I'll grab a piece of pizza on the way to school. So I was wondering what could I do in that training block? I'd already run, I had already done my gym time and um, I, I, to do a sport or to row or something like that was, took too much time. So I was pondering this and one day I was walking home on 23rd Street from the subway and I heard these shouts coming from this building. And I stopped underneath you know, the doorway and I looked up and I was standing under a flag and it said World Sado Karate Headquarters. And I was like, huh, interesting. That sounds intriguing. We didn't have any martial arts in upstate New York at the time. So I went upstairs and I was transfixed by the man I saw in the middle of the floor teaching this black belt class. And he was a, like a five foot five um, Japanese guy with a 10th degree black belt named Nakamura who had founded this style of karate. And he was different than any other individual I'd ever seen in my life. Right? He had this, this presence about him and this intensity, but also this spontaneity and this playfulness. And the respect that he commandeered was just awesome. And I was like, whoa, whoa. And, and the, the way I saw these black belts kind of manage their bodies and minds and, 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 and the respect that they had and the humility, I was like, I want this. So I signed up and started training with Nakamura. And he was my primary instructor because he was one of these guys. He had several hundred thousand students worldwide, but he showed up every day at his headquarters to teach. Hmm. And he taught blind people. He taught disabled. He taught the white belts like me, and he taught black belts. Well, I did that for, I was training for about three weeks when I noticed, uh, or I stayed around on a Thursday night to watch the black belt class. So my white belt class ends and then there's another class and then this black belt class starts at six or seven or something like that, maybe a seven. And so I was like, I'm going to stick around and watch these black belts. And so I did. After the black belt class, I saw some, a small group of people go to this one kind of corner and they start to get these little benches out and they set these benches up and everyone else is taking a shower and leaving and the lights go down and suddenly Nakamura goes over there and he starts, you know, getting everyone set up and he's leading a meditation class or a session with about 10 of these black belts. And I was like, what the, that is interesting. I said, what is that? So I asked about it and they said, you have to talk to the grandmaster. The, the title was Kaicho. You have to talk to the grandmaster. He might let you join, but usually it's for black belts. So the next day I asked, I, I found Kaicho and I said, Hey, um, Kaicho, that class, the black, uh, the, the meditation class, I'd like to join that. And he said, okay. So I did, and I started meditating and I trusted him implicitly with this, right? Cause he was my new mentor. He was like my, the father figure that I didn't have. And if he said that meditation was good for me, then I believed him. And it was hard, Daniel, you know, it was hard, right? And Zen meditation is like boot camp, right? And so it's concentration one-on-one. And so I had to sit there and the, the beginning practice was to inhale, exhale, count one, inhale, exhale, count two, inhale, exhale, count three. It sounds easy, but the trick is, or the catch is, if you think of anything else besides that, you have to go back to zero and start over. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, here I am, uh, you know, a 20 year old kid or 20, 22 at this time, 21, 21. And, you know, my mind is just as busy as any other 20 year olds. And I'm like, 
being asked to si you know to silence my mind here and to focus on this one thing, this inhale, exhale, and the count. So I almost quit, and he convinced me to just stick with it. He said, "This takes time." He said, "Stop putting so much pressure on yourself. Just keep coming and keep practicing, and start practicing every day. Don't just do it on Thursdays. It's just like fitness. You know, if you practice once a week, you're not going to get very far. But if you practice every day, just a little bit, you'll have tremendous progress." And when he said progress, I didn't even know what he meant, but I just knew that what he had was different than what I had and everyone else had. So I stuck with it. Hmm. Now, why is this important, you're asking, and everyone who's listening is like, so what? You know, meditation, everyone knows about it. They've got headspace or, or you know, insight timer, and people think meditate. They, they think they meditate. Well, I, I learned that meditation was training the mind. I had learned to train my body, now I was learning to train my mind. And that there were a series of things that had to happen in order to train your mind. And that when you, when you mastered those things, then you moved on to the next thing. And then each successive thing that you learned to do expanded your capacity. And I started to experience this expanded capacity. And so it wasn't a quick thing though, right? It took almost a year and a half before I started to experience the amazing, um, outcomes of the neuroplasticity that happens when you train your mind like that, especially as a young individual. So I started to um, experience, you know, concentrated effort, you know, and I'm working, working, trying, trying, trying. And then suddenly my mind would get tired of trying and just stop all activity. Be like, it would be like saying, okay, uncle, I quit. And I would drop off into these long periods of just of stillness, of silence, of non-thought, you know, with the uh, Japanese Zen masters called Mu, M-U, no thing. It's different than nothing. It's just the opposite of something. Hmm. So there was not something going on in my mind, but there was not nothing there because I was there. I was completely present, observant. And in those periods, time completely came to a halt. Like it, it could have been five minutes, it could have been 50 minutes. I had no idea, but it was just blissful. And whenever I came out of those moments, I had information that I did not have before. It's almost like I was uh, going on a journey and I was like being given information or, or accessing information and then just bringing it back into my conscious awareness. And I had no re reason to know this. I had no idea where it came from. And the information that started to come to me was that I was a warrior and that I was, I was a misfit for the current path that I was on and that I was going down the wrong path and I was barreling down this path fast. Hmm. And then if I didn't do something about it, I would, I would end up living a life of regret and I would have a crisis at some point in the future. And so I started to reflect on that. I was like, wow, that's really interesting sensation and feeling to have. Like it wasn't conscious. It wasn't something I was like being fed or read or I wasn't having conversations about this. In fact, I was pretty committed to my MBA CPA career path, but I kept getting this information. So I started journaling practice. Again, this is before people were talking about journaling. I just started journaling it. And what that meant to me was asking better questions. And I'd never been taught to ask questions. You know, the art of self-inquiry was new to me. So I just started to ask better questions of myself. You know, and I started with the negation. I said, I've chosen this path. Is this path really my path? And the answer was no, this is my parents' path. This is a story that was fed to you. This is a, a, a construct that is not yours. It comes from your parents, it comes from society, but it's not yours. So you, you bought into this construct so you can deconstruct that construct. And then I had to ask, if not that, then what? 
if I'm not meant to be a CPA or a warrior CPA, then what am I meant to be? So I started to ask, well, what am I passionate about? What are my principles? And what do I really think my purpose is in life? Here I am, 21, 22-year-old kid asking those questions. All of it came from this meditation practice. Through about six months of inquiry like that, I got very clear, it was very clear to me that I needed to be a warrior and, and switch my careers. And, and my purpose was, was to go do warrior stuff and lead warriors. But you know, mind you, it didn't say, my purpose didn't come to me and say, you're meant to be a Navy SEAL. It was you're meant to be a warrior and you're meant to lead warriors and, and, and be involved in that. And that's when I learned about the Navy SEALs, right? So things line up when you get clear, right? When you're clear about your purpose, everything lines up for you and, and life suddenly becomes easy. You get that life flow. But if you're, if you're off track and you're doing something that is not on point for your purpose or your calling, then things are difficult and challenging and life's a struggle and you end up suffering. So I, I got clarity that my life was to be a warrior and suddenly everything started to line up for me. I, I was shown the Navy SEALs, you know, in spite of all my efforts to torpedo my, my own uh, application process, I ended up getting admitted, one of two people uh, to get admitted to the Navy through um, the civilian wor world. Most SEALs officers come from the Naval Academy or ROTC. Mm -hmm. They take one or two a year through officer candidate school who are civilians. I was one of two people in 1989. So I got selected to go to SEAL training through officer candidate school. And I'll end the story here, but check this out. So in, in November of 1989, I received my MBA from NYU. I received my CPA after four tries of passing that nuisance exam. I get my black belt, my first degree black belt in karate, and I walk away from it all and go to Oscar Canada School. And you don't just walk away from it, but when you were in your SEAL class, I understand you, you graduated first in your That's class. Right. Is that right? 185 hardcore individuals when I showed up in class 170, 19 of us graduated, and I was number one graduate, the honor man. And my entire small team, we call a boat crew, graduated with me. And I give full credit to Nakamura and the, and the practices of mental management that he taught me. Breath control, uh, the work that I did with imagery, uh, the ability to manage my emotions and my positive self-talk, and my sense of already having one in my mind, right? I already knew that I was going to crush this program because I had won it in my mind. And that, that comes from a, I use that now in my training uh, in Unbeatable Mind, a famous Sun Tzu quote. You know, the victorious warrior wins in his mind and then goes to battle. The other, everyone else goes to battle hoping to win. I had one in my mind. I had a, a rich visualization practice while I was meditating before I even got accepted in the SEALs. This is another individual who had a profound influence on me at Colgate. If I could tell this story real quick. Yeah, Bob, Bob Benson, who passed away a few years ago. Bob was my swim coach, and he was an early pioneer in, in sports visualization. You know, 1983. He asked me to visualize my uh, 200 meter breaststroke. And so I had a stopwatch and I would visualize this at night. Now, mind you, I'm in the fraternity, four people in a room, most people, you know, drinking and, you know, playing cards. And here I am sitting on my bunk trying to visualize my 200 meter breaststroke with all that distraction. It was a great practice. It took me a long time before I could finish the race in my mind. And when I finally was able to finish it, 
my time that I got was about three seconds faster than I ever swum. Well, as I already told you, that was sophomore year. Junior year, I go to uh, England. And so I'm not swimming because swimming is mostly a fall into winter sport. So I come back junior spring and I run into Coach Benson. He says, hey, Mark, you know, uh, how is Europe? Blah, 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 blah. And he goes, by the way, we have our championship race next weekend or in two weekends. Would you, would you like to get in the pool and still consider you part of the team? And I said, sure. I thought sounds good. Um, I didn't really want to, but I couldn't let the guy go. So there I am, I'm standing on the blocks, haven't been in the pool for over 18 months. The gun goes off, I jump in the water and I'm doing this, this actual race and I'm, I have this sensation that I'd swum this before. And when I touched the pad, I got the time that I had visualized, three seconds faster than my fastest time and I hadn't been in the pool for a year and a half. It was intense, I was like, wow. So I kind of like mentally kind of, you know, put that in a filing cabinet. So there's something about visualization that I need to come back to. So when I decided that I was going to be a Navy SEAL and I was working through the process and they were telling me, don't get your hopes up. You know, we're only going to take two people this year. You got a better chance to be an astronaut. I visualized, I started visualizing it every day after my morning run, I would sit down and do my meditation practice. And then I added visualization. And instead of visualization, you know, my swimming, I visualized myself going through SEAL training. And the only fodder I had for the imagery, because back then there weren't all these TV shows. No one knew about the SEALs. It was a completely secret organization. I had one recruiting video called Be Someone Special, and it had imagery of guys, you know, doing uh, SEAL training and operations. So I watched that about 20 times, and then I inserted myself into that video, and I would visualize myself as the Navy SEAL going through training, graduating all the way down to the time of the day and, you know, feeling what it would feel like. And I did that every day. And nine months into that practice, I still hadn't heard from the Navy, you know, yes or no. Nine months into that practice, I had this overwhelming sensation that I was a Navy SEAL. Not that I wanted to be or desired to be or wished to be or hoped to be that I was already a Navy SEAL. And literally, like two days later, my recruiter, Nick Capone, called and said, hey, congratulations, Mark. I'm surprised, but you got one of the two billets. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. So I kind of knew that, right? And he's like, you guys are weird. You're going to make a great seal. I said, yeah. So I had already won in my mind. And when I went through training, I knew that I was going to make it and I knew I would crush it. And I wanted to, to bring my team along. So I taught them these skills. It's never happened before that an entire boat crew makes it from start to finish. Has it happened since? No. Wow. And so anyways, it, it, that, this whole story is really cool because you know, I went off and, and I'm, I do my Navy SEAL leadership, but I, I continue my training because I was like, this is the best thing since sliced bread. This is everything to me, right? Developing my mind, developing my spirit and keeping and, and integrating that with my body is to me the most important thing because from there, everything else flows. All the service flows, all good thinking, correct decisions. Um, and, and as a SEAL, you know, good battlefield decisions are life or death. And so this practice let me know, even in combat, that I was, I was never at risk. I could feel it, right? I knew that I wasn't going to be one of the guys who got injured or killed. SEALs are weird that way. Like they, they literally have almost this manifest destiny where, and I was talking to a, a friend of mine who was a master chief who was in um, Fallujah. And he's like, you know, the Marines, he was a sniper. He's like, he'd go out and he needed, you know, couple spotters and so the marines and and seals were too valuable so the marines assigned two guys to him so he go out with these two guys and these two marines and this is a sad story of course but these two marines got killed 
but he didn't, you know, bullets are going flying around. Like he could have easily gotten killed, but he didn't. So the Marines assigned two more guys to him and he goes out and, you know, they're taking out the bad guys and these two guys, poor guys get killed. And he didn't. And this happens two more times before he says, stop giving me more Marines. I'm going out alone. Right. Um, And so I had that sense. And a lot of my teammates had this sense that, you know, we, you know, we're like called upon to do this and there's this protective energy and it's partly in the way we think like we create, I've since learned that we create the conditions for the world that shows up around us. And Navy SEALs as a team and as individuals create the conditions for massive success on the battlefield. And it's just ironic, you know, they just don't have, you know, it's, it's rare, right? Like we had a, a, a situation where, um, a, you know, a, a helicopter with 17 SEALs was shot down. That was a random accident, right? Stuff like that. But, you know, there's only 2,000 SEALs and we probably lost 20 some odd in this whole 20 year war in Iraq and Afghanistan, maybe 25, something like that. And the same thing happened in Vietnam, right? We only had 200 SEALs in Vietnam and we lost maybe 20. Just very, very few SEALs get killed. And I felt that, I knew that I wasn't gonna be injured or hurt and that I would accomplish my job, but it was all, it was all up in my mind. It was in my mind. Hmm. So I had this extraordinary experience as a SEAL leader. Um, and I, then I developed a, a unique skill to uh, create training programs that could teach some of these innovative skills to the SEALs. And then that, I parlayed that into my business called SEAL Fix. I wanted to teach the next generation of warriors these, you know, these really deep warrior skills, which some people might imagine would have been part of our special ops training, but they are not. Hmm. They are now because they're using a lot of the skills that I developed with Unbeatable Mind in SEAL training and pararescue and, and special forces. But they weren't when I was going through, and they weren't until literally the last few few years when they realized that these skills, because I, I think my SEAL FIT program has trained about a third of the SEAL force, anecdotally. We don't have exact numbers on it. Um, those who train with my program, 90% make it through SEAL training, which is you know, compared to an 85% fail rate for everybody else. And so the, the Navy, you know, the instructor team and the, um, the SEAL command down there is like, well, something's different about these guys. So they wanted to bring it in. So that's kind of become my life purpose. So I, I think that I became a SEAL. The meditation led me there to be a warrior, not so that I could be the best, baddest warrior on the battlefield, but so I could teach, you know, the next generation of warriors and then bring these into the corporate realm, which I'm doing through my business, Unbeatable. Wow. Well, I wanted to ask, too, in relation to the training, I mean, SEAL training is obviously legendary for its difficulty. Um, And it's been in the news in recent years because there were a couple of deaths during the training. Um, I'm curious if you can talk about a little bit about the training itself and maybe um, how it's changed since you went through it uh, in the 80s to now. The training starts when an individual says, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And, and the smart ones, they figure that out early and they train for years before they even show up at a recruiter's office. And those are the ones who make it. I've trained 12-year-old guys who were like super mature and said, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And they, they did the right things. And by the time they were 17, they were ready and they crushed it. Hmm. So thousands of people show up every year to the recruiter's office wanting to be a Navy SEAL. Of those thousands, roughly 750 make it to boot camp, uh, make it through boot camp, I should say, or maybe, maybe, um, 
maybe it's like more like twelve or fifteen hundred make it through boot camp, and then there's something called seal. Um, uh, what is it called? Um, Buds prep. Buds stands for basic underwater demolition seal training. That's the primary seal school, but there's a prep course that's four months long. So then the individuals make their boot camp, then go to Buds prep, and about forty percent make it out of Buds prep. And so of the forty percent, now you have about uh, seven hundred fifty to eight hundred who show up at Buds. Buds is three phases. It's six months long. And then there's a course called SEAL Qualification, which is more team training, where Buds is individual, which is another four months long. So the whole thing is 10 months. The first three phases of Buds, uh, the first phase is physical conditioning, and it includes the program called Hell Week, which is pretty famous. Most people equate SEAL training with Hell Week. And it's, it's six days nonstop training, 24-7, no sleep. Starts on a Sunday, ends on a Friday, and it's um, simulating the conditions of combat, the most extreme conditions that you know a human being could be faced with without sleep. So you're dealing with sleep deprivation, you're dealing with extreme exhaustion, and you still have to perform complex tasks and physical evolutions as an individual and as your team or your boat crew. It's an extraordinary experience. Most people, but so so like let's look at my class for example, and it's fairly typical. We had 185 people. By the time we got to Hell Week, we were down to about 80. And by the time we got out of Hell Week, we were down to about 40. And then by the time we, you know, and that was week seven. So then, you know, those 40 trained for another <laughs> 30, 25 weeks or so, or 30 weeks. And by the end of it, we were down to 19. So first phase is physical and mental conditioning, and it really is basically to weed out those who aren't going to be worthy of being good teammates and have the physical, mental, and emotional aptitude to become Navy SEALs. And then the, the, those who are left after Hell Week go into more you know, um, intense physical, mental, and also tactical training. So we start to learn the basic skills of being a SEAL. You know, um, we, we learn... All the, you know, all the under, underwater demolition team stuff of beach reconnaissance and, and diving and long ocean swimming and learning to navigate um, at night and underwater. You learn all the tactical uh, things of how to, you know, how to, how to handle every single weapon known to mankind, how to blow things up. And then you start putting that together into um, operational uh, stuff during the SQT phase. And all of this is fairly rudimentary still, even though, it's, you know, the average civilian would think it was extremely advanced. It's not advanced compared to when you finally graduate SEAL training and you get that, that gold trident. You go to a SEAL team after that and you're considered an FNG, friggin' new guy, right? And then you get assigned to a platoon. And in that platoon, you start your training all over again. And, it's, and you're expected to have all the basics, but now they really start to ramp things up because now you're training as a team. And the team is now also training with other units. So you, you start to augment with uh, EOD or explosive ordnance disposal, aircraft, you know, air units, because you're learning to jump out of every aircraft and, you know, and repel and fast rope and, you know, all sorts of uh, really cool things. And so you train together typically for 12 to 18 months before you deploy. And then when you deploy, you're, you're basically, um, that's when the missions start, Right. So it could be, you know, from start to finish, um, a good two to three years before you ever deploy for war. And that first deployment is still considered cut your teeth. You're not considered a full Navy SEAL by the community until you're done with your first deployment successfully and you haven't screwed up.
And um, you can imagine, you know, of, of the 15% and make it through buds, by the time you get through that first deployment, you're down to maybe five to seven percent of those guys are, you know, thumbs up legit Navy SEALs. And a lot of people wash out or get out and, you know, a good percentage of people who say they were Navy SEALs are first timers who don't really have the, you know, don't make it beyond that first, either through their own knowledge that they're not cut out for it, or some people just do it for the trident to say they were a Navy SEAL and then they go out and, you know, <laughs> get the accolades. <laughs> but the true warriors know that they're in, they're in it for the long haul. They're the operators, right? And then after that, you know, you basically, um, you start to really hone your craft. And, and so for officers, the craft is leadership. You have to be good at everything, but you don't have to master everything. What you do have to master is the art of uh, uh, strategic and tactical planning and leading. And for the enlisted uh, warriors, and, and the SEALs are enlisted community, uh, really. I mean, it's like 75 to 80% enlisted. They're the, you know, the, the workhorse and the, and the real knowledge base. So the list of guys, you know, they choose a specialty. They have to do everything well, but you'll find some gravitate toward demolition, some gravitate toward sniping, some gravitate toward air operations, some gravitate toward dive operations, et cetera. And then you navigate your career, right? So it's going to be different for officers enlisted. You tend, there's a lot of variety. So for instance, for, for me, I was at SEAL Team 3 for about four years, which is long for an officer, but I was asked to stay by a commanding officer to do an extra platoon. Then I went to SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1 in Hawaii, which is our mini submersible unit. It's phenomenal, very interesting, very challenging work. Um, after that, because I got married um, and, you know, the Navy, if they wanted me to have a wife, they would have issued me one. <laughs> and my wife wasn't um, quite up to speed on what it would mean to be married to a Navy SEAL. And after my first two times gone for, you know, months at a time, she was like, uh-uh. <laughs> And so I had to make a choice. I chose the marriage and I stayed in the reserves. And so half of my career was active duty. Half my career was reserves, which I think was the best freaking part-time job in the world. <laughs> you know, because I could pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, Commander Lumpkin, what do you got? And he goes, well, I could use you in Afghanistan right now. I said, in, you know what I mean? I'm in Afghanistan two weeks later, you know, fighting alongside the guys. And then, you know, I'm, I'm done four months later and I take off the uniform. I go back to my business. Anyways, and the enlisted guys, um, you know, one of the you could stay in the SEAL team, regular SEAL teams, or you can shoot for DevGrew, which everyone knows about as the SEAL Team Six. This is the unit that got Bin Laden and and uh, Hussein, and and um, and that's the path I would have taken. I was on that path had I not um, had the marriage kind of uh, take me off track there. It's a phenomenal group of individuals. Um, I can't say enough good things about these guys, and yeah, the training is hard. Um, there have very, you know, everything gets amplified by the press. But if you imagine what we do, it's surprising that more people don't pass away. Yeah. You know, there's shallow water blackouts all the time during buds when we do the underwater crossovers. And, you, you know, one of our evolutions is called pool comp, where we literally, we put the dive rigs on, open circuit dive rigs. We go underwater in the deep end of this, uh, what we call the combat training tank, which is seal speak for a pool. And we get attacked by two instructors. And, and, and they're not like with kids' gloves down there. They literally beat the shit out of us underwater and rip all of our gear off and strew it across the bottom of the pool. And we can't surface. We have to find all of our gear, don it, meaning, which means put it back on. And, and the trick is they take this, it's an old double hose regulator system, which they don't make anymore. And they take that double hose and they tie it into the, the hardest knot they can. 
So there's no air coming out of your regulators or out of your bottles. So, you know, for me, I had to sit there and work this thing and I had my feet on it and I'm yanking it and there's no air coming out. And I'm, I'm down there for like literally three minutes. And as we trained for this before I finally get a little bubble pop out of it, and I'm like, there it is. And so I just wait and I fill my mouth up with the bubbles, swallow it into my lungs. That gives me a little bit more time. I work it, work it, work it, get a little bit more trickle coming out, work it, work it, work it, you know, six minutes go by and I finally, I get the air, put everything back on and I go to the surface. It's, it's intense. It's intense. Now, the death, one guy dies of a heart attack. Well, athlete's heart happens. Several hundred thousand young men die every year from athlete's heart. It happens in SEAL training. Um, one individual has died recently from um, drowning, right? He overdid it. It was an unfortunate accident. Um, we often get the flesh-eating bacteria because, you know, we, we dive in San Diego Bay and out in the, off Coronado Island and Tijuana is right there. Tijuana has a sewage problem and all that sewage flows out in the ocean. And so it's just nasty. And yet we're diving in it because we have to. And so during hell week, when you're all broken down, you know, if you get a scratch, which everyone does, or, you know, you're, you're, you're chafed down to the bone and that stuff gets in there and you can get flesh-eating bacteria and, and that's a real serious problem. And so you got to take care of that. I don't know if anyone's died from that, but um, encephalitis, I think they call that. Hmm. But it's, you know, a lot fewer people die from SEAL training statistically, and again, compared to the number of SEALs, which is not many, relative to other services. It's just insignificant. Hmm. Dangerous business, though, as you know, Daniel. It's, it's not say, for the faint of heart. Yes, I'm already <laughs> terrified, and I'm just <laughs> sitting here, so... <laughs> Um, let's talk a little bit about your books. Um, I think, uh, what I'd like to do is, uh, I'll just say the name since you've written several and maybe you can tell us what each one, each one of them is about. Sure. Um, so I guess I'll go down the list here. Eight weeks to seal fit. So when I started seal fit, I wanted to train warriors and I knew that what worked for me from Nakamura, from my martial arts, it was the combination of hardcore physical training with the softer side of these other skills that he had taught me, breath work, meditation, and then, you know, of course, I innovated with the visualization and whatnot. And by then, I had also, um, I you know, I'd taken up another martial arts, so I had another black belt, and I'd taken up yoga, so I had about 800 hours in yoga teacher training certifications, and so I was learning all these new skills from there. And so it's like, okay, I want to build a training program that's really unique and innovative and takes best practices from east and west, north and south. And so I, and I said, the best way for me to do this is to bring people to me and to train them for a long period of time immersively and train them all these different skills. And then, you know, through that process, I'll, I'll refine the techniques. So I launched a 30 day live in academy called the Seal Fit Academy. And it's like a, it's like the Shaolin monastery of the West. I had, I had spec ops guys, you know, candidates living with me on site in my training center in Encinitas, California. We trained from zero dark 30 until 10 at night. And then the graduation ceremony after 30 days nonstop was a 50 hour nonstop training event, which was modeled after hell week. Hmm. This training was extraordinary. And these students just crushed their, you know, whether it's special forces or ranger or seal training. I had, um, Someone, the word got out about this training after about two years, and I had a lot of civilians come to me, and, and I had a lot of um, reporters doing articles on it. And I had uh, McMillan um, come to me 
and say, hey, can you write a book about the training you're doing? And I said, yeah. So I wrote Eight Weeks to Seal Fit. It became a New York Times bestseller, mainly because it wasn't really a fitness book. It was a book about how to train your body and mind like a Navy SEAL. And I also had a physical training program baked into it. So that was the first book. The second one you're probably going to ask about is Unbeatable Mind. This came out of the same period because I couldn't possibly put everything into seal fit. So I focused mostly on the physical training with some, some of the mental skills. But throughout this, this process, I had also developed all these other skills. And I had civilians come and say, listen, I want you to teach me those, but I can't, my body can't handle the seal, hardcore seal fit workouts that you're doing. So I said, huh, there's an opportunity here. So I developed a program called Unbeatable Mind, and I delivered it through a 12-month online training program that came accompanied with a book. It started out as an e-book, and then I took that book. People loved it, and I said, okay, I'm going to make this into a real book, and I'm going to self-publish it. So I, I edited it two more times and then self-published it. And so that became – that's actually my best-selling book, and it's still self-published, still sells on Amazon. It's sold over a million copies, and that book is about – training the mind and the emotions in the spirit. Like how do you really do integrated development? I call it five mountain development, physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, spiritual. Take control of your own mastery and then give it forward in service. That's the whole philosophy. Um, shortly after that, I had Macmillan, oh, I had Reader's Digest come to me and say, we want you to write a book on Navy SEAL leadership. I said, I, I will, but I've I got to write it from my perspective, right? I, I'm not going to do just the chest-beating, you know, combat leadership type stuff that you see today. I want to teach people the principles of how to think and act, and I called it the way of the seal, right? So with a real kind of nod toward that kind of Eastern Taoist, you know, philosophy that I was espousing. So the way of the seal became a... Um, it's more of a leadership book, right, for, for business professionals and how to think and act and how to develop these practices like breath control and concentration and really um, bring a lot more power and, and focus into your work and clarity into understanding why you do what you do, the things that have really helped me out. That became a uh, Wall Street Journal bestseller. And then uh, McMillan I, is also part of this training program because I was really into yoga and martial arts. And yet whenever I tried to teach these to the seals, their eyes would glass over. I, so I, I, I had to take the foo out of the kung fu and create a program that was appealing to them. So I did. And I initially called it warrior yoga, but I found someone had a, um, a trademark on that. So I changed it to Kokoro yoga. And Kokoro is a Japanese term that means merging your heart and your mind into your actions. And so Kokoro Yoga became like the integrated movement and integrated you know, physical, mental, emotional practice, the, the daily practice of what you do to develop yourself as a total uh, human being. And so McMillan wanted me to write a book about that. And so that became Kokoro Yoga. And then they came back a couple of years ago and said, hey, we'd love you to do another leadership book. And I said, well, I'm gonna do one on teams and so that um, book I launched literally the week the pandemic hit called Staring Down the Wolf. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's my latest book. And I'm working on one right now called Uncommon, which, you know, is really geared more toward like who I was when I was 21 and, and me speaking to me or me speaking to that group and saying, boy, this is the book I wish I had, you know, to really help me organize my thoughts and my mind and, and you know, get myself on the right track early in life so I don't screw up and 
have these midlife crises that you see all the time. You know? Nice. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you um, about the Courage Foundation. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I, I'm passionate about supporting veterans. I think, you know, there's a common mistake in our culture to think that vets who go to combat and have post-traumatic stress are all broken and they need sympathy. They don't. They're freaking national heroes and they're our national assets. And so with a little bit of healing, uh, these individuals, men and women, can have an extraordinary impact on our culture to lead others through the fire of what we're facing here in this fourth turning of uh, time of you know extreme exponential change and chaos and war and famine and pestilence you know <laughs> literally like we're going through a really um, intense period of human history on the other side of that is going to be this remarkable um, beautiful long period of peace and prosperity is my vision and I see it very clearly but it's going to be chaotic and challenging Younger generations see that the world's messed up, and a lot of them are being born with a higher level of consciousness than, let's say, my generation, and yet they lack some of the fundamental skills. And so one of my missions, my mission is to train and inspire 100 million leaders to be able to guide us you know, through this tumultuous period that's coming up. Well, um, the warriors who've been to war and back and have been able to heal are brought really at the forefront of that. And so warrior vets are starting amazing organizations um, and are also becoming great leaders in young entrepreneurial organizations because they understand how to confront chaos. They understand how to lead in VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. They understand they have the emotional maturity, right, to be really, really authentic, heart-centered leaders. So I want to, through my Courage Foundation and in partnership with other foundations or, or uh, nonprofits that are helping to heal vets, um, I wanted to be part of that. And so I started this Courage Foundation a few years ago. And we have a year-long program for veterans um, to help them thrive and reintegrate back in the culture as leaders. You can find more information at uh, couragefoundationusa.org. And we're probably changing the name but that's what it is right now. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, we're doing good work and, but it's, it's tough to raise money. You know, there's so many organizations out there and the pandemic is, you know, made sure. it hard. So if anyone's in, intrigued, then I'm, we're all um, open arms for any support financial or other. All right. You've, you've made it to question 13. We're here. Oh, that's fantastic. You made it easy on me. I did most of the talking. Sorry. No, that, that's, you, you made it easy. Um, <laughs> curious. Um, you know, I, I try to ask something a little bit different at the end, but, um, you know, what is something that anyone can do um, to improve their mind, to improve their body? Um, if you had one tip for someone, if they, they didn't want to go through your full course or, um, yeah, sure. you know, what is one thing you always recommend to people? Well, the, the prerequisite is don't leave your body behind. Your body is your mind. And so if you're not taking care of your body, you're not taking care of your mind. So that's the prerequisite. Now, assuming you are doing that by exercising every day, by eating well and by sleeping well and, and, um, and those types of things, recovering, which everybody should be doing, there's no shortage of information on that nowadays. Then the next most important thing to do is to begin a practice of controlled breathing, controlled nostril breathing. And I have a practice I innovated. I didn't innovate, but I popularized box breathing starting in 2006 
So if you just Google box breathing, Mark Devine, you'll find tons of information and free videos that I have. So box breathing, controlled nostril breathing is a mental development, but it's also an arousal control. And so most, um, most of us, if not all of us in this culture are hyper aroused. We're task saturated. We're overcommitted. You know, think about the average Colgate student. You know what I mean? It, we think it's a good idea to, to pile all this shit on them, but it, it's really not. It'd be much better if they had one immersive course to learn, you know, different types of things that they could get really engaged in in a low stress environment to really open up their total learning capacity, heart, mind, body, and just absorb and allow their creativity to flourish, allow their 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 spontaneity and curiosity to guide their teaching instead of just cramming information into people because all the information that's crammed in is going to be meaningless in five or 10 years when AI starts to do everything that humans do today. And, and what's left is our creativity and our ingenuity. So anyways, that's kind of an, a little side for anyone listening who's a teacher at Colgate. It's like, think about how we're, you know, how we're, we're teaching uh, young adults and recognize that the exponential age is going to require a very different style of teaching. Uh, it's funny that you say that because one of the major third century plan initiatives uh, is the creation of the Benton Center for Creativity and Innovation. And that's going to be a hub for interdepartmental collaboration, experimentation. There's going to be maker spaces, computer and media object labs, um, studios, new music practice rooms, flexible performance, and exhibition spaces. So we're pretty excited for that construction to begin terrific. very soon. That's terrific. Yeah. And I think Brian Casey is doing a phenomenal job. My hat's off to him as a leader. It's just a phenomenal job. Um, and so he understands this. And I think that the, the university is heading this direction, uh, but can't go fast enough, right? Because these things are happening way faster than most people really perceive them to be, right? And suddenly it's going to be honest. But back to breathing. So when you breathe through your nostrils and you slow things down, you develop um, control over the arousal response. So normally, um, you're being triggered into a sympathetic nervous system response, which is fight or flight. And so you're constantly being triggered, time pressure, task pressure, deadlines, traffic, everything. Even just checking social media is going to trigger the sympathetic response. So slow and controlled nostril breathing, five count in, five count out, or box breathing, which is five count in, hold your breath for five count, five count out, hold your breath for five count triggers the parasympathetic nervous system because you're massaging the vagus nerve, which is activating the parasympathetic response, which is rest and digest. And so you're counteracting the sympathetic response. And when you, when you turn this into a daily practice, so I recommend 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, and, it, and it, it's in lieu of meditation because most people are ill-equipped to meditate because they're too hyper-aroused. So meditation is just distracting themselves, or it's like thinkitating, you know? Most people fail at meditation and then they quit because it's, it's very difficult to do when you're hyper aroused. So the first step, and I learned this from Nakamura, is to de-stress. And you do that through controlled nostril breathing. And the yogis call that pranayama. And anyone who studies yoga knows exactly what I'm talking about. And they're nodding their head and say, yep, you're right. So that's the most important thing to do. And if you do this alone and that's all you do, then it, it gently guides you into the deeper mental practices. It shows you what's next and it turns into a concentration practice, which develops your powers of concentration and attention control. And then it leads you to those places that I talked about earlier that I found on the bench in Manhattan with Mr. Nakamura, where you begin to find the, the rich, um, the rich inner life 
which is our gift and our birthright, right? And so everybody who's looking for something outside themselves or striving, they're looking in the wrong place. All the answers lie within. And what I mean within, I mean first within your mind and then beyond the mind. And the only way to get there is through the breath. The breath is the bridge or it's the path from the body the, you know, to the mind, into the mind, to the spirit, and then beyond. And so just following that breath and, and paying attention to it every day is one of the most profound things that, a, that an individual can do and add to their life. And that was 13. Thank you so much for joining the program today, Mark. I really appreciate it. I also think this might be our first explicit episode. We'll have to have a little E on the on the Apple. Uh... <laughs> oh, really? Did I say? Yeah. You can always cut those out. <laughs> um, That's I, the I Navy also... Seal and me cutting out. <laughs> Uh, I also want to thank all of our listeners for tuning tuning in uh, throughout the year and sharing the podcast with your friends. Um, thanks to everyone who reaches out, uh, tells us what, is, what they think about our episodes. Uh, we will be back again at the end of August. I generally time our uh, the beginning of a new season with um, a new student arrival day. Um, so until then, be well and keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate sophomore and media relations intern, Marianma Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.